Welcome to the ASBMR Speaks podcast. My name is Dr. Suzanne John Deber, president of ASBMR, and I'm proud to present the only podcast dedicated to discussing the latest developments in bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal research. ASBMR is the society of basic, translational, and clinical scientists that make observations that spark discovery with flow from the bench to the bedside and the bedside to the bench. Our initial series, Pathways, ASBMR Stories of Discovery, is hosted by Dr. Michael Econs, Distinguished Professor at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Throughout this three-part series, we'll speak with pioneers in the discovery of FGF23. We'll explore dysregulation of FGF23 in renal failure, inhibiting FGF23 for treatment of X-linked hypophosphatemia, and the interplay of FGF23 and iron. FGF23 is just one of numerous pathways that have been elucidated by ASBMR scientists, shaping fundamental understanding of bone, mineral, and musculoskeletal biology, and then harnessing this knowledge to improve human health. Be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to tune in to future episodes. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to our third ASBMR podcast on FGF23. I'm your host, Michael Econs from the Endocrine Division in Indiana University. If you've listened to our other ASBMR podcasts, welcome back. The goal of these podcasts is to not only review some exciting science, but also to learn about what led to the progress. Today's guest, Dr. Miles Wolf, is Professor of Medicine and Chief of Nephrology Division at Duke University. He's made numerous contributions to the field, particularly in the area of FGF23 in patients with chronic kidney disease. Miles, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'll get started with the first question. Can you walk us through the link between iron regulation and FGF23 regulation? What drove your interest in this area? Well, I think there's been lots of different uh, people have plugged into this story from, from different angles. Certainly, you've done some of the seminal work yourself. I think more focused on patients with autosomal dominant hypophosphatemic rickets, which is really just an unbelievable, fascinating story of how you have a germline dominant mutation, but yet many people walk around seemingly unaffected unless they happen to get iron deficient. And so you have this second hit that comes along. And so reading uh, on, on what you guys did, I was always interested in what the potential plug-in of this was for kidney disease. Because one of the real big questions on FGF23 and chronic kidney disease is why does it go up? early, early, early in kidney disease when it first starts to rise. And you'll see a lot of review articles will have some obligatory sentence in the first couple of paragraphs about phosphate retention being the upstream stimulus for FGF23 production, but the evidence for that is really lacking. And the timing when FGF23 is already elevated in a patient with early kidney disease is long before you can demonstrate any evidence of of phosphate accumulation. Mm -hmm. And so a real big open question is, is why does the FGF23 go up? And it turns out that 
the iron plug-in might be relevant here too, as it is in ADHR, and that is kidney disease is a highly inflammatory state. And you know, many of the diseases are caused by primarily by inflammation of the kidney, but even if they're more or even if they're more benign on that front, let's say less inflammatory diseases like diabetes, there's still uh, some degree of systemic inflammation attributable to the underlying disease or the kidney disease. And in that setting, there's sequestration of iron. And it would seem that as long as the cell that makes FGF23 thinks there's iron deficiency, whether there's true iron deficiency or functional iron deficiency, doesn't really much matter. That cell might respond and co-opt those pathways that lead to an increase in transcription of FGF23 and subsequently eventually elevated levels of kidney disease. So this is not proven as a hypothesis, but I think there's a reasonable likelihood that iron deficiency is, is an important component of why FGF goes up in kidney disease. On a completely separate side note, we, I've gotten involved in some studies, uh, mostly clinical trials, investigating different IV irons. And some of these IV irons are associated with hypophosphatemia. And initially, it was not entirely clear why this was happening. And so uh, I've done three trials now on this topic with, with different sponsors. And the unifying theme is that a certain IV iron formulation that is now one of the most widely used in the world, uh, causes acute increases in FGF23 that drives hypophosphatemia that can be seen in more than 50% of patients who get this drug. And what's fascinating about it is, is for me, for my role as a, a kidney researcher, is when you give this drug and it causes an acute increase in FGF23, you can recapitulate in three or four weeks what we believe is the full pathogenesis in sequence of disordered mineral metabolism and kidney disease. Uh, so you have high FGF23, it suppresses the 125, the calcium is suddenly reduced, PTH kicks in. And so from two completely different angles, I got interested in the iron and, and, and FGF23 link. I think it's got all kinds of potential applications. That's great. And, and just as a side note, the clinicians in our audience will be seeing patients. I, I know I have certainly seen patients who are referred for hypophosphatemia, in some cases referred for low bone mass, who have hypophosphatemia due to multiple infusions of the newer iron preparations. So it's a clinically important problem right now. Um, yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, I, I get called a fair bit, uh, like you do, about people with refractory hypophosphatemia where the teams are struggling. And, and I don't even ask, I don't even want to think about anything until I get an answer first that they got an IV iron, because that really is, is way more common than some of the rare hereditary stuff that you guys study. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, um, I've gotten referrals for low bone mass when, in patients who were on IV iron, particularly for things like Crohn's disease and the like, which really is very common. Yeah. Um, what was your first kind of aha moment when you fought, saw that first piece of data and thought, wow, this is really going to be big? You yeah. know, I was, sitting in, uh, I was sitting in this horrendous office that I had at Mass General Hospital. This was my first faculty position. I graduated from the residency program and the fellowship program there. And as is often the case, the, the startup package for homegrown talent is around 
number, also known as zero. Zero, yes. <laughs> I've been uh, there. <laughs> and, uh, and it came with this office in the Bartlett Hall extension, for anybody who knows what I'm talking about, where it was like the ninth floor, which was actually the attic. So there were, the ceilings were like seven feet tall, and there were pipes running all across them. So you had to watch your head depending on where you walked. But we, we, did this, uh, we did this study where I, where I measured FGF23 in a couple hundred patients with new onset end-stage renal disease in whom we had one year of longitudinal clinical follow-up on. And uh, I got the results back and I, you know, I, I violated statisticians' rules of you know, how you're supposed to do analyses where you, you know, you start with the simple descriptive stuff and, you know, and, and layer your way up to the crescendo. I started with the crescendo. I just wanted to see what was what. And so I just, uh, you know, pecking away at my stats package, lined up all the FGF23 values into quartiles for no other reason than that's a common way to do it. And, you know, ran the, the survival analysis, the Cox model, or actually it might've been a logistic regression, but in any event, ran the, the association of the FGF23 exposure and survival. And lo and behold, got this result where it went from one to two to four to six, when you, you go from you know, the lowest levels to the highest quartiles. And I was literally stunned speechless. And, you know, went back and redid it, made sure I had the coding right. And, but that was it. I mean, that was, wow, something that I had dreamed of would be the case and had hypothesized. And then you actually do the experiment and it came out even better than you anticipated. That was the other crazy thing about it. You know, there's a thousand things that influence survival on dialysis. And I started adjusting for bunches of them. And it didn't touch the effect of FGF23. It was like ironclad. There was minimal confounding. It was just an absolutely stunning moment. And I'll, I'll never forget it between the setting and the quality of the result. And that eventually was a big breakthrough paper for me that got published in the New England Journal. Yeah, that I, Those are the times in science when you say to yourself, wow, I'm so glad I'm doing this. And the really fun times in science. Um, and they're really rare, so savor them because there's plenty <laughs> yes. of other times where all different kinds of people will line up to tell you your work is crap and triage <laughs> it. So you gotta you gotta savor the good moments. Yeah, and and lots of and, bad ones. And it's very true. You have to have thick skin in in science because all of us, at one time or the other, will be told numerous times that. Our work is not up to snuff and uh, and not worthy of funding or, or whatever. So uh, we've all been there. Um, it requires it requires some sort of survi academic survival gene. Actually, one of our faculty in uh, our pediatric endocrine division looked into this, Linda Domenglio, and and found out that the two biggest factors in in the success of a young faculty member. She did this when she was a young faculty member were mentoring and resilience, personal resilience. And I've remembered that she told me that years back and I've remembered it ever since, it's very true. 
science is always changing, uh, but there are certain universal things, being passionate, being open and picking the right project. What advice can you share with members of our audience about picking the right project? Right. So picking the right project. Well, first of all, there's a very nice article in the New England Journal of Medicine many, many, many years about that, uh, uh, before this, maybe in around 2000. And, I, and it was literally uh, an article on that exact question you just asked. And so, I, and I really like what's in it. I can't remember at the moment uh, who the author is, but I'll, I can get it to the ASBMR folks and maybe they can tack it on at sure. the end of this. But there's a number of things. One, I always want to have a spec on the horizon line that I want to get to. The, the current project doesn't have to be, you know, 25 years worth of work, but you want to have a sense of where you're headed broadly, some sort of North Star or that spec on the horizon. And it should be something important. And it should be something in my mind uh, I'm, I'm a physician scientist, so I view it through the clinical lens. And somehow it should improve clinical management or improve outcomes. It should somehow ultimately change something about what we currently do for the better. And so then once you have that spec on the horizon line, you can start to think backwards about the development plan that you would need to get from where you are today to that very distant point of the future. And all the steps are important and, you know, being methodical about going through them, I think is, is critical. Now, what's good about doing it this way is that you always will have significance on your side. If you don't have significance on your side, you're going to be toast when you put in NIH grants. So that, that helps you with the significance thing. It also helps you usually create a, a cascading effect or a domino effect where you do step one and step two, let's say, and it begets step three and four. And, and, and so each project builds on the previous and leads to the next. And, and so that kind of making sure that your projects have a progression is really important. I, I think this concept of looking to the end of the story and then working your way backwards is just generally a good approach for picking projects, for pretty much doing anything uh, academically. Decide generally where you want to get and then say, okay, what are the things that I need to get there? You know, and, and you work your way backwards and then it becomes clearer about what to do next today. It's, it's, it, 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 another word for that would be starting with the end in mind. There you go. Uh, so now that's terrific advice. Uh, how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things in, in, in the field? Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. Um, the way information is packaged now, there's some pros and there's definitely some cons. Uh, I think the pros are that you can set up these sort of RSS feeds and, and get channeled uh, to you all the information on, on the searches that you, you know, put into these feeds. So you can, you know, so I keep track of what's going on in the IV iron world. I keep track of what's going on in the FGF 23 world more broadly. You know, uh, I might keep an, I get the table of contents for the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA. I mean, I think everybody has a slightly different approach. I, I think gone, long gone are the days where I would idealistically sit down with the paper copy of the New England Journal and start from the beginning and read through to the end. You know, life gets in the way, 
administration gets in the way of that. So I, I have to be much more strategic and targeted. And it is a bit of a bummer because my interests are broader than what I do for a living. But, but you know, you really do have to remain focused in order to be competitive in, in a very challenging funding environment, which, you know, is not going anywhere. That's going to be the case, you know, I think, as long as uh, I'm doing this. So, you know, I try to, uh, I try to go to Grand Rounds, uh, certainly Reno Grand Rounds as the chief of the division here. I, I attend all of them to the best of my ability. And that, that really helps me stay current uh, in my field. But, you know, there's just too much knowledge out there to try to, to capture everything. Mm-hmm. Now, the con of all this is that some of the best ideas and best strategies come from the collisions of two different fields yes. where, where you get out of your echo chamber and you hear how somebody else is doing something. And all of a sudden, iron and FGF 23 collide. I mean, who would have thought that mm-hmm. um, as just a, an example we talked about? So. You know, all the hyper-specialization, just like hyper-partisanship, does not do anything good for society, but it's very hard to do otherwise and, and feel like you're keeping up. So this is a tension, the tension to specialize versus the tension to just be receptive to what's going on around you in general and where those tools might be applicable to what you do. You know, one thing is you get, this is not really good advice necessarily for the young people, but for us old folk, the young people going out and they're still in school, they're still in training, uh, you know, they may be doing a master's or a PhD program, you know, they're getting exposed to a, a broad curriculum of things. And they can sometimes bring back good tools and good tricks and ideas to us who are a little bit too focused. And so that can be a useful source of, of inspiration and, and ideas. Great. I think it brings up another idea in my mind is that is in lab meetings, lab meetings need to be open where everybody is absolutely contributing and, and feels very free to, to throw out an idea because that's the kind of thing that comes out in lab meetings. People feel comfortable just throwing out ideas and it, it could very well be that most of them are bad, but you'll, there'll be some, as you bounce ideas around your lab and around collaborators, good ideas tend to, to bounce out of those situations. It's also a reason for going to meetings. And uh, some of the meeting, uh, a good percentage of the meeting occurs outside of the formal lecture hall where you're sitting down with a cup of coffee with a collaborator or someone who has somewhat similar interests and you bounce ideas back and forth and collaborations sometimes come out of that. Um, Finally, uh, what's the number one takeaway that you'd like our audience to absorb from today's episode? Oh, I don't know. I don't, uh, I don't have any preconceived ideas of what other people should extract from this. I I think if, if something that we discussed resonates and helps people, I think that's a win. I think the, this whole concept of, of, of doing this kind of podcast with a focus on career development and bone and mineral research, I think it's a great idea. And I, as I said to some of the folks who organized this, uh, I announced my clear intention to pilfer this idea and apply it uh, in the future when the opportunity arises in, in, in my field, and, well, in the kidney field. So I, I think it's a great idea, but I think there's all kinds, you know, different things are going to speak to different people. I don't think there's any single takeaway a message. I think 
One thing I didn't mention earlier that that I would add when we were talking about the um, picking of a project, it was one other thing that I wanted to mention. This is primarily for the physicians listening to this, that is people who have clinical activity. I I really think an an enormously helpful component uh, of what I've ingredient in, in my personal track record in, in research has been seeing, you know, really paying close attention to, to the patients and really seeing questions emerge from, from clinical care. And, you know, I think some of the best situations were when I was a young person and asking, why do we do this? Why do we do this? And if, the, if there was no real clear answer, if the, uh, you know, if you were sort of shoot away and told that's how we do it in this apocryphal kind of approach. There's often a very good research question lying in the midst mm-hmm. of all that. And so I think having your antennas up as an astute and introspective and inquisitive clinician, um, if you can figure out how to channel that to see where the questions are, and then using your research background to turn those into testable hypotheses. I think that's another great way to cultivate an interest and and develop a research career, pick a project. No, that's great, Miles. Thank you very much. It's been great talking with you and thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASBMR Speaks podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the ASBMR Speaks podcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast streaming platform. And stay tuned for the next installment of our series on FGF 23, coming soon.